Hello and welcome to Drewly Noted. I am myself, I'm Drew Orland, and I'm joined today by another fantastic guest, uh, starting off what I guess I could call season two, because I took a little bit of a hiatus there. Um, but our guest today is a wonderful guy. Some of you may know him as one of my roommates from college. Some of you may know him as a friend of mine from high school who was in Drumline with me and uh, has been a, a great friend ever since. Uh, it's the one, the only Mr. Blake Richard. Welcome, Blake. Oh, hello. It's an honor to be uh, co-hosting season two, episode one here, Drew. Uh, I don't know if I give you uh, co-host privileges. Let's and, say you're, you're well, I give my yeah, I give myself co-host privileges. <laughs> I guess I'm not running the board or anything though. So, do you even have a board? I don't. Uh, maybe we could set one up. Um, okay. Maybe if people get tired of me, we could set up a, a sort of co-host arrangement. If we ever get the thing going that we talked about where we have like five-way podcast of me, you, and like all the all the boys in the room at the same time, we'll have to give you like faders so that you can you know, censor us as necessary. <laughs> yes. I, I want one of those big, like uh, in like a recording studio, just like a big slider that I can move up and down. Yeah, yeah exactly. And then like buttons to cut each of us off, you know, like Danny yeah. starts going too long and you just like give him the cut. Yeah. Also probably a good idea. I mean, even if it wouldn't be live, but I would want like a six second delay just so I could stop the recording before something even gets recorded on, on audio. It, it would be live, but we would broadcast on like a 10 second delay. And you could do like the cable news networks where they have like the doomsday reel that just like flips over to a band playing the national anthem or something. But like, we'll be right back. <laughs> yeah. It cuts to the, the eyes of Texas. Exactly. <laughs> well, uh, how are you doing today? Thanks for joining me. Doing well. Um, I'm glad you reminded me that I was, that I was co-hosting tonight. I'd completely forgotten. <laughs> if I say it enough, it's going to be a thing. Yeah, just keep saying it. Uh, just to jump into it, uh, some people may not be aware, but you're getting married soon, are you not? I am, August 14th. Wow, it's coming up. Yeah. Um, it's been interesting, right? Because like we, are, we got engaged during COVID, but like we're not a COVID wedding couple. At least <laughs> hopefully not. Because like, <laughs> right. I, mean, I mean, it's looking good. Like everybody's pretty much vaccinated, I feel like. Yeah, I think most of our extended family we're like not concerned about anymore. Um, I was like fairly concerned when we were planning a wedding last year, and, and we were sitting there, and I was like, "Are we like really dumb for like putting deposits down, like like large deposits down for a wedding in 2021?" Like, yeah, because we got engaged in what September 2020, so it had not like we had not yet reached a point where I was like confident in what it was going to look like come August. Yeah, and then we started cutting checks for deposits, and I was like, "This might be a really bad idea." Yeah. But it doesn't look like it looks like we're going to be like pretty free and clear at this point. Yeah, it kind of seems like perfect timing. Um, I, I I didn't remember exactly when you guys got engaged, but like at that point, I don't know. Did we even have a vaccine yet? Did we 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 no. The time I don't think we're still. I don't think we're even close. Because I told you guys that you, you failed to mention Drew, you're a groomsman. You have to give yourself credit. You're a groomsman in the wedding. Um, uh, that's an exchange for the uh, co-host title. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, but I was saying that that's relevant because like, I think I told you guys when we were at Vignesh's wedding, which we were both groomsmen in yeah. and we were at that house out like by the lake for his COVID bachelor party. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember like, I actually proposed to her the next day and then we like saw our families and stuff. So I like left the house with the 10 dudes in it and like went and got a COVID test before I went and like got engaged and, and went around my family and everything. So I, I, that was still like, Fairly in the heat of things, because I remember I was like, oh, well, it's six weeks before the wedding. So, like, we won't ruin the entire wedding if we all get it. I guess yeah. we can roll the dice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the reason I bring it up, I was just wondering sort of like what I having never planned a wedding myself, but having heard stories, I, I'm wondering this far out. I mean, are things 
are kind of set in stone or are you still having to like make decisions and plan stuff? So things are reasonably locked down at this point, like especially all the big stuff. Um, we locked down like the venue for the reception in the church and everything like months ago. We locked down like uh, we're, we're getting moved in a Catholic church. So you have to lock that down like over six months in advance sure. uh, just to like make sure you have the day available. So I think we got that like literally a month after after we got engaged and then went and looked at venues and stuff. So it's really only like the smaller stuff. Um, she's got a dress. I've got the tux, like, I know what tux I'm going to get. The venue's done. The food is almost done. We're doing a tasting in like June to pick the food and stuff like that. But yeah, it's, it's all like fairly sorted at this point because it's just crazy. Like how far in advance you have to do all the wedding stuff before sure. it's, it's already like all booked. Yeah, I bet. Like we tried to book our photographer almost a year in advance because we were trying to use the one that Big Nesh used at his wedding. And she was oh, like, yeah. ar- she was like already booked when we got engaged really? for like a, basically a year in the future. Wow. I mean, that, that makes sense. She was a pretty great uh, photographer. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly why we wanted her and exactly why we couldn't have her. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you could just uh, do a double role at Beat the Groom and the photographer. At- Photograph my own wedding. Do like yeah. a vlog, do like a vlog type thing. Yeah. Could you imagine me like straight arm with the camera in it, vlogging myself down the aisle? <laughs> yeah. One of those like uh sort of like bendy uh arm things yeah. that you can <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the little like grippy tripod things. Tell yeah. the priest to be like, hold up, father. I need to uh honey, can you give me a smile real quick? Like just before <laughs> we do the, the the I do part, like, can I get a couple shots? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the reason I mentioned that, uh, some people might not know you you've got a pretty nifty uh photography business going is that yeah no it's 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 pretty fun i it's like a it's like a small side business side hustle thing that like i just started in the, basically at the beginning of covid actually um i don't know if you were i don't think you were there because at that point you were still in africa um but me danny vignesh and connor all got together and for like a parking lot covid thing and danny brought his drone and i was like hmm that's interesting maybe i could monetize this and so then I went and bought one, bought a camera and just, yeah, I, I go around doing like small different photo and video projects, doing some stuff for realtors, like in their house, uh, their listings and stuff, taking interior photos. And uh, I've done some drone stuff for some commercial realtor guys and some social media stuff for uh, a development up in Frisco. So yeah, it keeps me busy in my, in my free time. Right now doing this, I'm, I'm podcasting with you and neglecting the editing I need to do from the weekend shoots that I, that I had. So we'll get to it eventually. Yeah, you're welcome for that. Um, yeah, yeah. People can't see, but Blake's background on Zoom is this like gorgeous shot of uh, Dallas from a distance with like a cool lake in the foreground. And I was like, "Oh, that's cool. Where'd you get that picture?" He's like, "Yeah, I took it <laughs> just casually." Yeah, um, it's like my subtle flex for people at work. They assume it's from the internet, you know, but now it's me. <laughs> yeah, it's a yeah good conversation starter. Um, yeah. You know, I don't sell prints, but if you want the uh, photo that is behind me right now, you can go to my website and I'll dramatically overcharge you for it. <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah, I, I think I, I can't remember when I saw that you were like doing that, but I was like, oh, that's cool. Like a fun little hobby. And then you started posting stuff and I was like, this is a this can't be <laughs> like this is like professional level photography stuff. Um, I appreciate it. You know, YouTube's a magical thing. You can really fake it till you make it nowadays especially when you're locked in your house with nothing else to do other than watch YouTube videos and learn how to do it. Wow. Then I got very sick of being like the, um, the tester. Like, <laughs> Hey honey, we're going to go figure out how to use my camera today. Can you just stand still? <laughs> so you're basically just like self-taught then you just, uh, went on YouTube and watched a bunch of videos or. Yeah. I'm kind of just winging it. 
uh, I just found a few photographers like on YouTube that, that I like their style. And I think I'd watched a couple of them previously just because I was interested. Like I have like a thousand different hobbies and I'm always looking for new ones. And so it was something that I had like known about loosely done, like really basic level, low level stuff with my phone before, but like nothing, nothing professional, nothing real. And then I was like, Oh, I've got nothing but time. So yeah, essentially self-taught. Um, maybe I'll, maybe I'll go like get a professional to show me the ropes at some point, but I don't know. It's good enough for now. Yeah. I mean, you could, uh, it looks professional enough to me. <laughs> um, now that you mentioned it, uh, you do have like a lot of really cool hobbies. I feel like you guys make fun of me sometimes. Cause you'll be like, Oh, Drew just showed up in like Mexico. <laughs> What's he doing there? Like without telling us. So that's and, very, that's very different from a hobby. Looking at, looking at like find my <laughs> friends to be like, Oh, like where's my brother is, did, did he make it home from like dinner? And I'm like, Oh my gosh, Drew's in a different state than I realized he was in. <laughs> or like having a third party that I didn't know even knew you being like, Oh yeah, Drew, when are you moving to DC? And then all of your best friends being like, do what now? <laughs> um, well, yeah, I guess it is a different thing, but it's tangentially related in that. I feel like sometimes you just walk into the room and be like, all right, I'm uh, headed out to the airfield, going to learn how to fly a plane now. <laughs> and we're all just like, what? Oh, yeah. I, I actually almost forgot about that. Hobby. That was one of the reasons though that it was so easy to do like the drone photography stuff, though, because like uh, I didn't know this before I started looking into it, but you actually do have to have an FAA license to like do drone photo and video stuff for hire. So you can like go buy a drone and do it for free, like just for fun. Um, or like just take pictures like this for yourself and stuff and like hang them in your house. But as soon as you go sell it to someone, mm -hmm. um, you actually have to have like an FAA license to do it. So like the, the brief time that you're referring to in college where I went and flew planes just because it sounded fun was actually like fairly relevant because I didn't really have to study for the testing. I kind of already knew it all. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, so I don't want to spend too long on you. Uh, <laughs> this podcast isn't about you, of course. Uh, <laughs> you're not the co-host. No, kidding, of course. Uh, but I did want to uh, give you the opportunity if you wanted to, uh, you know, some of my guests bring a topic or something that they want to chat about or uh, spread the message of to the wider world. So is there anything that... Yep. Uh, yeah, I was thinking about one. So this is something that I thought about for a while. And it's like, by virtue of the job that I do in like my nine to five. So like my normal day job, other than my fun, you know, side job of photography, mm -hmm. uh, my normal day job is like, you know, I do analytics at a big bank, sure. like a lot a very big bank. So I work at the corporate headquarters and, and do like data analysis and some like light level of statistics type stuff basically to help us make decisions based on like all the customer data that we have and all the, the financial data that we have. So like, that's my, my nine to five sure. uh, and something that like, that I never knew or didn't, didn't really click with me until I did my internship with this bank was the topic that I want to bring up, which is a lot of people say, like, look at the data, right? Like the biggest argument that like Trump cards that you have in an argument would be like, look at the data, the data says, and then followed by like an argument that can't be refuted. Right. Right. My position though, is that no data is objective data. Data is not an objective thing. Interesting. So I don't actually think that like, playing that trump card should be as valid as it is in the way that you see it played a lot today interesting so like a lot of people you'll hear like a lot of talk about like misinterpreting data or like uh not presenting it in like a contextual or like honest way um, right but you're saying like sometimes even the, the data itself 
or yeah. in, in, in all cases. It can't so, so I, I'm saying a few things. I'm saying, I, I guess I would say two, two main things. Okay. Three, maybe three main things. Number one is half the time that you're being presented with like quote unquote data, what you're actually being presented with is a number that is a summary of something that someone has, has gone and looked at data to like find out, right? You're, you're, you're rarely presented in your day-to-day life for an arguments with raw data to support someone's argument. You are presented with a summary statistic of some sort. Mm. X percentage of people believe this or that, you know, X percentage of people with the COVID vaccine, for example, are like not getting, not dying from COVID, not getting COVID. You're not actually being presented with like the raw data. You're just being presented with summary statistics. Okay. So that's like point number one is most of the time when people present you with data, they're just giving you summary statistics, which are filtered through the following like two lenses, right? Mm-hmm. The second thing is there is data bias in what you would consider raw data, okay? Mm-hmm. So in order for you to observe data, what you would think of as like the lowest level of, of data points, right? You might call it like, even like in the context of like primary sources, right? You, you would say, it's not someone's evaluation. It's not someone's summary. It's a primary source. Like I'm, I'm watching it. I'm seeing it. I'm reading it. Something like that. The person who collected that primary source, even if that person's you, collected it through some, some biases. There were some biases or some filters applied in the collection. Okay. Hmm. And the point is, there are even more biases and filters than that in the summary in how you read them. And I'm what I'm not saying is that people can manipulate data or people can can lie to you using data, which is true. What I'm saying is that the same three people looking at the same raw data set or different three people looking at the same raw data set can in their best good faith effort as educated people come to three completely different conclusions. Sometimes they contradict one another. Interesting. So there's my three big points. (laughs) And I'm just going to drop, like drop the mic at that and be like, you can't argue with me. (laughs) No, I'm, I don't know if I could. Um, I think I'd have to agree with you. I, I don't deal with a lot of <laughs> data sets in my work, um, but and I, I won't ask you too much about uh, <laughs> your, whatever your work is, because I'm sure it's uh, sensitive, but. I, I um, can give generalized examples to prove my point, you know, or, or just like, so I'll, yeah, I'll talk about like, <laughs> yeah, I'll talk about like the third point where I was like, you know, three people doing their best, best effort, like three qualified, intelligent people who know what they're doing, doing their best can come to different, different solutions, right? So mm. frequently at my, at my job, my analyst job, we are told that like our main job is actually to be storytellers. So the job of the analyst is not actually to just like pull data because tons of people can do that. And there is an objective, like, let's say that even if the data is biased itself, when you take the raw data you have and you ask for it to be pulled, like that's a very objective thing, like go retrieve this from the, the system. The point after that though is not everybody in fact, most people without the proper level of context can't just look at raw data and spit out what that means, right? right? So the job of the analysts is essentially take that data, turn it into an English story and you know charts, visualizations, something like that to explain what story that data is telling. And where the bias groups into that is like, depending on your level of context or your background, you could look at a set of raw data and come to very different conclusions or present it in very different ways, right? So like, I'll take this for example, like, without getting into specific detail, just a general banking concept of like lending money to people, right? So you lend money to people and you expect that some number of people are not gonna pay you back, right? 
right? And so that's why we charge interest rates because some number of people aren't gonna pay you back and you need to collect extra money from the other people in order to make up for those, those people who lose money. Sure. And so if I came to you, Drew, and I was like, hey, you look at this raw data and you see that of 10 people, two of them didn't pay us back. So 20% didn't pay us back. Right. What's your reaction? Um. <laughs> like if you looked at that and you were lending out your money and you saw that two people didn't pay you back, what would you think? I guess we'd set the interest rate to account for those two people not paying us back. Let me, let me like, <laughs> you're not interested. I'll be like, specific, I'll be specific. If you okay. saw that two out of 10 people didn't pay you back, would you think, Oh wow. Like that's pretty bad. Oh, 20%, 20% of the people that we lent money to didn't pay me back. I see. Um, yeah, no, I, I wouldn't be like, I'd be like, Oh, 20%. That's not a, a whole lot. Yeah. So then you had context on top of that. They're saying that like, Hey, those people actually had super high credit scores. And on average, we would expect that mm. only 3% of them actually fail to pay us back. Yeah, then I would be a little bit more surprised. Yeah. And then like, if you go, if you go the other direction, you go like, oh, actually, they, they were all like very, very risky. We're actually lending to like very, very risky small businesses, like startup type of thing, where we expect that basically 50% of the people that we lend to are, are going to fail and go bankrupt and just not be able to pay us back. Then you'd be like, oh, wow, we like massive, right? Right. So the one piece of context completely changes the data. But like, if you look at a headline, oftentimes you're not going to see any context. All you're going to see is like, like, oh, there's like 20, right? A survey of X lending companies said that 20% of the people they're lending money to didn't pay them back. Well, you don't know, like, is your hair on fire or is that like actually really, really great? Like you've way beat expectations. Right. And that's like the, the most, most basic version of it is like, you're missing a piece of context, you're missing a piece of background. Um, sure. but, but like, just generally people could look at, at sets like that, data sets like that, and just come to different conclusions based on, hey, I'm looking at the numbers that indicate someone else's behavior. If those numbers were like applicable to my life, what story would I be, what story would my life be telling if I was seeing those numbers? Like, if those numbers were in my life, would my hair be on fire? Would that be normal? Would that be like something to cheer about? And then like each individual person that looks at that is going to tell the story differently because of like how they would apply those numbers to their own life. Um, yeah, it seems like you can, wh whoever has the tools can can decide sort of what this, the narrative is. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it's super interesting because like I deal with data on the, on the order of like billions or trillions of data points every day is like the amount of data that we have where I work. Oh my gosh. And we have literally millions of customers that are feeding, that we're, we're collecting that data from, who, who are interacting with us. And so it's very, very interesting because like part of what I do is, or what I used to do specifically in one of my early roles was like, I would make generalizations about the data. And then I would actually go in and, you know, every time you call into a bank or something, you get the little like pre-recorded message at the beginning that says this call may be recorded for quality assurance and servicing purposes. Yeah. So for a period of time, I was servicing purposes. Um, oh. And so I had the ability to go in and pull anonymized calls and listen to people interacting with the agents. So you could go and you could make generalizations from the data and be like, oh, okay, people aren't paying us in the way we expect because of this. And then you go and you listen to the call and you realize, wow, I was totally wrong. Like I can hear in their actual conversation, the, the actual reason why they're behaving that way. And then you realize, okay, well, why did I tell the story? The story that I told from the data is very different than the story that I would tell now that I've heard them actually speak to our agents. And then that's when it emerges of like, well, what were your assumptions when you were, when you were looking at the data, mm. right? And those assumptions 
what a large company will try to do is try to train you all to make the same assumptions. So that's basically what they do. They'll, they'll bring hundreds of us together and be like, well, if we can train you all, we know you're going to make assumptions. If we can train you all to make the same assumptions, then we'll at least know a consistent, like we'll have a consistent output. <laughs> and then we'll know like what, what all of our, if we can just know we're going to be biased then we can go impose all the same biases as each other. Oh, that's interesting. Right. Then we'll know when the data gets presented, what biases everyone is working on or what, what frame everyone is telling the story. Through. Right. That's an interesting uh, solution. If you know you're going to be biased, then my, you you pick then you, you pick your bias, and then you can yeah you out. pick your bias and you measure. Interesting. And then you try to train to it. Right. So our, but our, that's that's always been like a very interesting thing to me. Is like they've always they've always preached like your job is storytellers. When you go to present data, we don't we don't present spreadsheets. We present slide decks that ideally tell stories, and they tell stories to people who are not technical, who are not analysts. We may not know what these biases that we're trained to follow or these assumptions we're trained to make are, but we're all doing it consistently. Wow. Did you, uh, um, so I know you majored in, in business in, in college, um, yeah. although we both st started out as engineering majors. Um, yeah. And uh, both quickly a, realized that was not the way. <laughs> um, did you, uh, uh, I mean, I know you said you work a lot with like this kind of stuff now. Uh, did you have any sort of like, um, classes around like statistics and uh, analyzing and stuff or is was this all kind of like on the job you you sort of learned about this stuff yeah i had like i had like a couple of low level stats classes and just general economics classes that would would tell you you know how you would expect a financial institution to behave but nothing about like deep analysis or storytelling around analysis or anything like that was ever like taught to us explicitly uh, it was a lot of on the job stuff and like i am not for what it's worth, like a deep, deep statistician. Like we have those people who go and actually build statistical models to, you know, okay. predictive statistical models to go and, and decide what like we think is going to happen in the future type of thing. Uh, my role is a lot more of like very, very basic statistics or looking at the, the information we already have and try to explain why it came in that way. Um, mm -hmm. Or like what is going on with our customers that would, would have them behaving that way. Sure. Um, but yeah, no, I didn't really have any like, classroom knowledge about it. Um, I think there ought to be more, especially in like a business school type of thing. Yeah. I don't even know the degree to which they do it in engineering or anything like that, but I, uh, I actually have an interesting take because I think it's interesting at least. I think like a lot of, you can actually draw a lot of parallels between like an, an analytics job and a journalism job. Hmm. Um, because journalists, they go and ideally they go and they observe things happening in the field. They then summarize them and present them to an audience and story, right? Right. Um, so I go and I observe data that we've collected. And I summarize it. And I put it together in a palatable way and I present it to an audience. Right. What's interesting though, when you take that lens, which I think is like pretty accurate from, from my perspective, at least, I'm almost certain that journalists are taking journalistic ethics courses or at least being taught about journalistic ethics, right? Mm. You don't spin the story. You, you ideally go and report the news as it's happening. Like, you don't inject your own biases on it. Right. I think there's something to be said for like, what if we did analytical ethics courses, right? So we, I've done like a business ethics course, you know, don't break the law, don't defraud people type of thing. Yeah. Um, but as far as like analytical honesty, like I could go and look at data and I could convincingly tell a story that I know is false. I could convincingly tell it. I could, I could massage the data knowing what I know about it and knowing what I know about the audience that I'm presenting to, like I could convincingly use true data to tell 
to come to a conclusion that I, I like know verifiably is false, but there's never any mention of like that being a thing. Right. Yeah. I, I like that parallel between the uh, analyst and journalist. Um, and when I think back to like our uh, education in like elementary through high school, let's say, um, I don't remember a whole lot of like data literacy, like <laughs> classes or anything like that. I mean, I took a statistics course, but yeah, I, I, there wasn't a lot of like, here's what to look out for. Here's how people are going to try and like trick you and stuff. Um, I think that's probably more important than ever these days. Um. <laughs> and it seems like even like, even in a professional setting that I'm in, a lot of the people with the best analytical judgment who can call you out on, you know, your BS, who can call out and say, yeah, you're giving me, like, I'm not going to dispute the data you're giving me, but like, you're telling me a dishonest story. Um, the people who are able to do that are because they have, they have accidentally told a story that was incorrect in the past using data. And they were really trying their hardest. They were doing their best. They were all good faith, really just trying to do good analysis and, and got it so wrong because of a, a trap that they fell into or a bias that they fell into when they were doing the analysis and got totally burned and had to like undo that massive problem that they caused. And those are the people that end up being the ones who actually have the best judgment in the future because they're like, they have felt the they have felt the burn, for lack of a better way to say it, of like not recognizing that it's not an objective thing. Like your first pass at it, what you see the first time may just not not be true. Hmm. So and then um, you get into the whole then you get into the whole like bias in actually collecting the raw data. But what were you going to say? And then I'll tell you why raw data is biased. <laughs> yeah, I, I was wondering that too because that's like a whole nother level. Um, well, I was going to ask, um, you know, as, as somebody who, as you said, could convincingly massage the data and present whatever story you want. Um, if somebody's telling you a story, what, how, how do you account for that kind of bias or how do you account for, um, wh what would you give uh, as advice to somebody? If you're like, here's what they're going to try and tell you, here's, here's what you listen for to try and figure out what the real story is. That's or are you point. saying there's just okay. there's not a real so, story? So, so. No, that's not what I'm saying. There is a real story, right? There, there's a real story. And, and if you have someone who is analytically honest, they will do their best to get you the real story. Okay. What I would say you watch out for is anything that is like just sweepingly general, or if they give you one number, right? So we, it, what does not fly at my job is showing up and saying, Hey, you should do the following. Like you should take the following course of action because here is the one number that I have generated that tells you that it's a good idea. You know, if this number was above 10, then it's a good idea. And I got 12. And then no, nobody would be like, cool. He got 12. Let's roll. Like <laughs> it's always a, Hey, I'm going to come out of the shoot saying I got 12 and we should go forward. And here is everything that I did to get to 12. And, and then here's like my documentation of how and why I did it and where I, where I pulled things from that I used for it, for the analysis and things like that. And you walk through your entire thought process and you basically show your work. Um, and I think that really the only way that you can know that you can come close to knowing the truth or knowing whether or not you're kind of having the wool pulled over your eyes is like, if you have enough context in the area and the person that you're getting the information from shows their work and you're like able to understand it, right? That's the context in the area situation. So like, Almost any poll I see on TV from any news network, period, is a one or two number thing, right? right? Here is my assertion and here is the number that indicates that you are not allowed to argue it. 
I take <laughs> none of those, none of those seriously. Like, I mean, you add in like the natural thing now, which is we all know that watching cable news, like period, whatever the, whatever the channel is, you're going to get some level of bias, but like, even if they're trying their absolute best and they just present you with 80%, 40% of some like ridiculously simplified sentence, like yeah. 80% of Americans believe the following ridiculously general sentence, like just take it with a huge grain of salt. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, uh, these days, well, I, I can't speak for everyone, but I know personally, yeah, if, <laughs> The, the more simplistic a, a news story is or the more like straightforward, like here's what's going on. I'm like automatically like, all right, <laughs> so what's really going on? Um, I don't know. I would also say, and this is maybe a little bit harder to take than that of like, if someone gets on TV, someone writes an article and presents you with a statistic and you look at it and you think, boy, I don't understand that. Like I have, I don't understand how they got to that conclusion. Yeah. It's probably not because you're too dumb to understand it. Hmm. It's probably because either they also don't understand where they how they got to that conclusion, or they're performing some sort of analytical backflips to present you a like version that that they would prefer to present you. Because if the idea is that you're sitting there consuming something that's not overly technical, like you're consuming a you know New York Times article or Washington Post article, you're not supposed to be a super technical person to understand that. Right. So if the writing is too technical, either the person writing it is just regurgitating and they don't understand it, or they're doing some sort of analytical backflips to get to where they're like able to present you something that they want to. Yeah. It's a good point. It, that, that reminds me of, I mean, it's not exactly the same, but it kind of, it, it's similar. And I think like having been a teacher for a couple of years, albeit in a <laughs> much in a uh, more simplistic capacity, I, I've started to gain a greater appreciation for like what a, what a good teacher is. And I think you kind of hit the nail on the head in terms of like, if the teacher is going over a topic or some, some idea, let's say, and you're just kind of falling behind and it's like no fault of your own. Like, let's say you did the reading and like you follow it. Like this isn't like me not doing, <laughs> not doing my homework and stuff. But like, if you're not following along, I think there's, there's a tendency to be like, oh, I don't get it. I'm like, I'm dumb. At, I'm bad at math or I'm, I like, I, for example, me teaching uh, my middle school is like, I, I don't, English is hard. I don't understand English. That's, that's more the teacher's fault than the students. Like the best teachers are the ones that can walk you through something. And uh, I mean, that's not like a hot take. <laughs> what, there's some, whatever saying it is, that's like, you, you only really understand something when you can explain it really well. Um, and I, I think that's not, not to get off topic, but I think that's kind of a similar thing. If, if, yeah, some, if somebody on the news is, has lost you it's more their fault than yours so what i i kind of derailed you um i think you were going to talk about like the data itself like raw data is that right oh yeah yeah no you're good okay so maybe the less hot take is is the fact the fact that like the summaries are biased right like a lot mm -hmm. of people would have agreed that summaries are biased but i think even like one level deeper of let's say i i don't trust the summaries and i say no actually give me the raw data let me draw my own conclusions in order to get raw data in almost all circumstances, someone has collected it and presented it. Right. right. So someone has done someone has done a summary on it. Okay. And let's use the same like journalist parallel, right? Um I, I I'm a I'm a journalist and I have my camera crew with me and I'm out like shooting a story. And we decide like what to frame up in the shot. At the most basic level, we decide what to frame up in the shot. Now we also decide how to edit the story, where to cut 
which different shots to use. But even at the lowest, lowest level, you decide what to frame up in the shot. Um, and you would consider generally a video recording of something as a primary source, right? Like you'd look at it and you'd say, I can I don't, I don't need your summary of it, I can watch it. Sure. But in the most basic sense, like something six feet to the right could have been happening, something six feet to the left could have been happening, mm. or in a like more malicious way, someone could have doctored the video, someone could have doctored the audio over top, or someone could have done very artistic or specific cuts to tell a story in the way that it was not supposed to be told. Like you could cut up the podcast that we're recording right now. And you, <laughs> could, make me, say. you could make me say some like really horrible things, just like chopping me at gaps and like string me back together in a different way. Right. And it could be like, yeah, he said it. That's his voice. Like Blake said yeah. that. That's his voice. Yeah. Right? I, I, if I'm being honest, I can't believe you just said that. That's uh, incredibly offensive and I'm going to have to end it right here. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, I, I don't, I don't, I don't take credit for anything that Drew publishes <laughs> or, or from my voice, even if it sounds like my voice. Well, did you to think that I would keep that in? <laughs> there's like, there's like a uh, uh, deep fix and, and things now too. So even if you see me on video, it's, it doesn't count. Um, yeah, my goal is to have um, so much audio of myself out there that someone could just create. Uh, a new could deep, yeah, could deep fake you doing absolutely anything. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to start showing up as you on my Zoom calls at work. I'm going to be like, I, cha I changed slightly, but, but, you know, still reasonably similar looking. Yeah, I don't know why you would want to do that. <laughs> I don't know who's trying to look like me. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, anyways. <laughs> okay, so the parallel, the parallel, right, to the, the journalist pointing the camera at a certain thing is, when I, when I go to work, I have, like I said, billions or trillions of, of data entries, okay? Uh, and they're, you know, financial transactions, uh, bank deposits, withdrawals, writing checks, swiping credit cards, swiping debit cards. Um, that, that, that information, while accessible to the bank, the ways that, that you, you log that information, that you make it accessible to the bank, that you make it accessible to analysts, or you take other people, you point them out where the raw data where the actions are actually occurring. And you say, I need that in a way that I can sit at my computer with my keyboard and, and pull it down and understand it for like all of history, right? And so when they go and design these things, they go and design these data pipelines. The very, very first thing is, okay, well, we need to collect it. Okay, so how do we collect it? You decide, you decide the system that you use to collect it, okay? That might collect it in a certain way. It might, at the very core level, like round a timestamp or a date stamp in a certain way that you're not expecting or something like that. So there could be bias there. But then you also have the next level, which is, well, what degree do we need to break down the information? So we don't have, it's not useful for us to just know every credit card transaction that would happen on your account. What's useful for us is that we can take those and we can explain what the transaction was, how much it was, when it happened, where it happened, the method by which it happened, you know, um, swiping it, inserting the chip, typing it in online, something like that. So these are not all just given established things that you say, oh, I want to track credit card information. And you just start getting all these things. Some person had to sit down and decide what's important. Right. And so that person has decided where they're pointing the camera. Mm -hmm. um, then beyond that, you say, okay, in a data, in a data world, you might have bad data. So there's something that you call data integrity, which is, hey, if we accidentally collect garbage, we want to get rid of it. Well, someone has to make the judgment call on what garbage is. Right. So something that comes in might look like garbage. In reality, it actually was just that crazy of an outlier that it looked like garbage to you, but it was real. But you've killed it now because you thought it was garbage. Yeah. So now our data quality is good. So long as the person who was deciding what was garbage right. didn't have a bias that we didn't know about. 
Right. Yeah, that's that's crazy. I, I've never heard the term uh, data pipeline before. I think that's an interesting image of like how much stuff you're dealing with on a daily basis. Um, I, I also really like the sort of like camera metaphor. And it's, mm-hmm. it feels like uh, more apt than ever because it's like maybe once upon a time it was like you're choosing what data to collect and like that's the bias. And it feels like these days it's like the data is just coming flooding in and it's like you're choosing what to look at. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, so even my argument would be that like even what you would consider, what you and I would consider raw data, what I consider in my daily job to be raw data, which is just like lists and lists of transactions or something like that. Yeah, It's already been through four or five different transformations before it gets to you. Mm. And all those transformations are done by people, highly, highly skilled people who are hopefully trying their best and not being dishonest, but it's all done by people. Right. My mind goes to, um, you know, sort of, you, you might make the argument that like, okay, if you take the data and you train like artificial intelligence to like, um, like uh, talking about like self-driving cars or like facial recognition programs, which I mean, uh, we're not the first people to say like, hey, maybe there's some bias in these things. But like, yeah, every sort of like news story I've seen about like the complications with those is, isn't so much about like the AI is struggling to like process the data. It's like, what if, if you only feed it like a certain kind of data, um, let's say, like for instance, um, the like well-known bias of like certain facial recognition software with like people of color, like not being able to understand, like be as, as good about like facial recognition. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're like, oh, a computer software can have bias, but it's like, well, <laughs> if whatever diet you're feeding it, like yeah. if, if that's all it has to go off of. Um, even beyond what, so yes, at its core, it's like what diet you're feeding it, right? But there's even a concept out there that like, and, and we're about to like jump off into the deep end of things that are like beyond my understanding even, or like outside of my realm of expertise. But like, there is a, there is a not, you know, not obscure school of thought that says, algorithms and artificial intelligence are biased themselves. Um, because when you think of it at the highest level, you think of artificial intelligence, you think of like a machine that thinks on its own, right? Right. But it's not a machine that thinks on its own. It is a machine that thinks on its, looks to think on its own because of the way that some person built it. Right. So, you know, yeah, for what it's worth, if we, if we can have like, you know, clones of ourselves that we could go and, and program, your clone would act a whole hell of a lot like you mine would act a whole hell of a lot like me if we went and programmed yeah. him if you just said like okay well like we have this thing now where you can just sit it down and teach it basically to be its own you know intelligent being it's it's going to reflect your beliefs you know like this this might just be a really terrible parallel that popped into my head but like it's the one that did um when you have kids you basically have an untrained little ai walking around that would know nothing we would know nothing if not taught it would know nothing if not educated by you, its creator, which now sounds like extremely dystopian, right? But <laughs> yeah. everybody's kids are, you know, probably more like them than my kids will be more like me than you, I imagine. And it's because like I'll do my best to to raise them and like make them smart and ethical and everything, but I have all my own biases. And they will in some way, even if I try to be conscious of them, like leak into, into what I am teaching. So yeah. if you think of AI and it's like, most dumbed down sense that we can understand. You have to teach it so. Yeah, that's a really good point. It is kind of like saying, yeah, my AI is unbiased. It's like saying, yeah, my child is completely- Is neutral. My child is a, yeah, is a neutral being of its own. Yeah, 
he sprung up from a, a pure fountain of reason. Um, yeah, he was a child of the world. Well, uh, now you've just convinced me I have to uh, hang around your kid as much as, much as possible to influence them to be as much as To much try to like, as, yeah, impart, yeah. impart some, some drewness on them. Yeah, I think all kids would be well-suited if they took after me. Um, yeah, sure. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll aim for like, you know, 45% me, 45% Diane, and 10% Drew. Good. Yeah, as long as there's a little bit, a little bit of space for me. Um, oh, I was uh, speaking of you and Diane. Uh, I know that you guys uh, live in Plano now, or I, I we do, right? Yeah, yeah we live in Plano. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and you have for for a little while. I, I'm wondering, sort of like, uh, what what is it like being uh, sort of so close to home? Um, you know, after spending four years away at college, like, it, was it weird to come back? Do you do you enjoy living close to your family? And like, how, how do you like Plano? <laughs> I guess is my yeah. overall, overall question. So, I mean, like, it's very, it's very different coming back after graduating college and everything. Um, I was actually like not particularly excited that the job that I took was like right there in Plano. I was like, come on, I could at least have been in like downtown Dallas or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I was very much like, I didn't, I didn't come home and like stay with my parents after college while I was working. I basically signed a lease as soon as my um, job started and like I had enough money to go pay my, my first month's rent at wherever I wanted to go. Um, so it, it's, I think overall it's nice. Like I really like Plano. Uh, Diane's parents live in, in Richardson, like North Dallas area as well. Mm-hmm. And then her sister's in Fort Worth. And my brother actually graduated and moved to downtown Dallas. So he moved back into the area as well with his girlfriend. Uh, it's nice having everyone nearby. It is, it was a weird transition back out of Austin, but what I will say now is like, I've been back to Austin, you know, a handful of times since graduating. Now Austin feels weird to me, right? Because my Austin, going back to Austin after college is a lot weirder for me than coming back to Plano after college. Cause I go back to Austin and I'm like, I do, I do things there and I'm like, oh, the thing that would feel right and normal would be to go back to my apartment in West campus with you, Danny and Connor and just like you know, go to sleep in my own bed at home. Cause like that was home for four years. And it was like, okay, yeah. At the end of every day, basically all four of us would be like chilling there. And then, you know, yeah. that's, that's a wrap. Right. And now I go back and it's like, oh, well, none of them are here. And I don't have a home. I don't want to go back to a hotel. I've never <laughs> had to go back to a hotel in Austin. Anytime I've yeah. been in Austin, it's been home. Right. So I actually think that's the, like the weirder thing for me is going back to Austin. And then Plano changed, like Plano changed so much in the time that we were in college. Yeah. There was like the, the legacy West Renaissance um, like in the overnight. four years that we were in college. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, I, I, the, most of the places that Diane and I like frequent in Plano, we're not at risk of overlapping with my parents because we're going to all the new play, new places. Sure. You're, you're not meeting up with them at, at Penn stack every night. <laughs> no, I can say I've been to Penn stack like once or twice since I worked there. And that was for paid for corporate events. I don't, I don't elect to go back to my, my old waiter gig. Yeah. Um, the, the way you t- talked about, um, Austin just now, it reminds me of like the first few times I'd go back, like, um, if I was home from college and I would go back to like, uh, so I, I worked at a toy store in Plano and, uh, called us toy, yep. <laughs> which is, it's no longer there. Actually, there's only, like a <laughs> big box store there. Um, but like there was, it was still around for a few years after I left and I would go back and just sort of be like. I want to just check in and see if like anybody I know is still there. And like, um, I mean, obviously like they hired me, so it's like hiring like, uh, high schoolers who are not going to be around forever, but I was just so surprised. Like 
even going back just a few years later, like everything had been moved around and like none of the, I didn't know any of the workers except like a couple of the managers. And it was just such a weird feeling to be like, oh, this, like, <laughs> I thought it'd be kind of like, oh, back at my old haunts. And it's just kind of like weird or, you know, driving by like uh, the football field. It's like, oh, I want to go check out what the band's doing. And it's like, wait, I don't really know anybody out there. <laughs> this is, it's not as cool as I thought it would be. Like I, it'd be cool to be out there with all my like high school band friends, but it's, it's a, a different feeling. Yeah. Yeah. The one of the, almost the most noticeable thing for me when I got back was I think my sense of space and like distance changed a little bit. And I don't know if it was just from driving back and forth on 35 for three and a half hours to get to school or like the fact that you would just sit in traffic forever and awesome to go anywhere. But right. like, when I was growing up or when we were in high school, if you had said something to me about like driving up to prosper, I would have been like, my God, that's like, that's like the well, boonies. That's like the boonies. That's far. Or even like main street, downtown Frisco. I'd be like, yeah. Oh my gosh, that's like, that's like up there. And now coming back, I'm like, I feel like I'm all over the Metro constantly, even though I live in Plano, I'm like constantly in Dallas and Frisco in prosper every now and again, like down yeah. in Knox Henderson area in Dallas. And it doesn't seem far away. Um, right. I guess that was also because like we could only drive for two years before college. And so like, it's different having to get your mom and dad to take you everywhere. Um, but I'm like, my, my sense of space and distance is different being back here. It's like the, the more so the whole Metroplex is open to doing things. It's not like you just live in Plano and that's it. Yeah. That's cool. Um, I, I still, I still encourage you to move back. <laughs> sure, sure. It's great. It's great. Drew. Being in Plano as an adult is amazing. You should come. <laughs> yeah that's what i was looking for i was i want you to convince me um yeah that's interesting i wonder if it's like <laughs> after driving back and forth between dallas and austin so much it's like well yeah driving up to prosper is like <laughs> no big deal just throw on a podcast i'll be there in no time um, yeah i don't think i could even make it through half an episode of truly noted in my drive <laughs> to prosper yeah and uh famously i mean this this show is so intellectual i mean you have to process it in little bite-sized pieces you can't listen to the whole thing at once yeah um five minutes at a time yeah um, it gets it can get dense the material can get dense yeah um oh there's one that one last thing i wanted to talk to you about um because uh i, I just saw the trailer today for uh, the dear evan hansen movie have you seen it yet Did i you? haven't so diane mentioned today that she was watching it and i was like really are you sure that's not a spoof because like <laughs> backstory i'm like very into musicals i love musicals i love broadway i love that stuff had dallas or musical season tickets that got canceled for covid and stuff like that um i was like surely i would have heard that about that before you like i'm way more into that stuff so up until you just said that i thought for sure she had seen spoof so it's a real thing huh yeah she's not pulling one over on you um yeah it, so it uh came out today i was like oh this is perfect timing because i'm going to talk to blake because um i think uh it was some like weekend that you we're like up in New York and you came back and you'd seen like a bunch of musicals or something. Yeah. You know what I'm, yeah. yeah. Uh, and you like, uh, you got the sheet music for one of the songs from Dear Evan Hansen. You like, you're like, Hey, come and try and play this on the piano. And like, of course I couldn't cause it was some like crazy complicated thing, but also you pick like one of the weirdest songs <laughs> for me to like, see, I was like, what the hell is this? Just looking at the lyrics. Yeah. Um, I remember like I, I went to like the souvenir the souvenir music shop in uh, Midtown there, like near all the Broadway theaters and they had all the books. And I think I got like, so for a number of musicals, they would have like the, the actual sheet music arranged for piano, of course, like not the full orchestra thing, but then they would have another easy version. 
And so I was looking for the easy version and I got like Fan with the Opera easy version. And I brought it back and I was like, oh, I can, I can do this. Like I can fake it till I make it on this one. Yeah. But they didn't have the easy version for Dear Evan Hansen. So I bought the full difficult version. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I can plunk through it pretty slow, I'm sure. And I flipped it over yeah. and I was like, wow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then I was like, well, the Drew's the piano virtuoso here. So if he can't even like hack through it, then <laughs> I, I like give up. It'll just be a, a coffee table book or something. I th- I'd be worried for uh, professional Broadway musicians if I could just sit down and sight read their their job. Um, could you just imagine though, like, and and I don't know how the industry works. I don't know exactly how how it goes, but imagine if you were an accompanist and going over to like auditions and stuff, and someone was like, "Oh yeah, it's, it's no worries. Like I'm just doing a Dear Evan Hansen song. Here's the 32 bars I need to do," and handed you that. <laughs> well, actually, now that I mentioned that, I'm sure a lot of those uh, people in that industry can do that kind of stuff like they're they're so good at their instrument that you like hand them anything and like maybe maybe it's not perfect uh, i was gonna say can they do that stuff or can they do like adjacent to what you would do which is if you know the song well enough and you have the right. chords in front of you like you can fake it because i know you if you if you had that sheet music which had the chords listed above it and then you like were familiar with the song which i would assume that you know audition accompanists for broadway they know like damn near everything yeah they can probably fake it right um yeah the uh the organist at the the church i went to um that my family's gone to forever um she's not there she doesn't she's not the organist anymore but she was also our the choir accompanist and she would i I, like obviously like we'd sing some of the same songs a lot but the way she could sight read just like any piece of music, it was just like jaw dropping. Like I've never seen somebody so adept at like sight reading a piece of music, just like sitting down at a piano and then being like, oh, okay. I think you missed a few notes here, but other than that, perfect. Um, That's wild. That's something that I've never been able to do. I, I can't sight read like melodic things at all. I can sight drum pretty well. <laughs> like I'm pretty decent at rhythms, but. Yeah. I always liked uh, when we go to like all region, and they'd like usher you usher you into the room after you performed. And it's like, all right, we're going to sight read this piece. And like for the rest of the band, it's kind of stressful because there's like key changes and you've like never seen this music before. And the percussion section would be like, all right, so bass drum, you're going to hit eight notes for uh, <laughs> 60 measures and then stop. <laughs> and like the hardest part would be like having to count between yeah. like 20 measures before your cymbal crash. Yeah, cymbals, you're going to count until the end, but don't miss the last note. Yeah. And then we just give like the keyboard whatever it was to Dylan and be like, all right, <laughs> you yeah. can go do this. Not knowing at the time that you probably could have done that as well. <laughs> um, now, are you, could you do it on, could you do it on like mallet instruments or do you not have well. enough, you don't have enough muscle memory for mallet instruments? Yeah. It's, it's more about much like being able to note accuracy of like actually hitting the notes of the mallets without looking at them. Yeah. And just, yeah. When, when you can like, uh, I mean, you play piano too, like just being able to feel the notes, you kind of don't even yeah. have to look as much. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, re- so, <laughs> the reason I brought all that up is because you introduced me to Dear Evan Hansen, which is like one of my favorite things of all time. Um, so Have you seen it live at all yet? No, but I've, I've watched a, a few bootleg recordings. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. It's funny, in, uh, in Togo, we like didn't have great internet access. So like a lot of the media that we consumed would be like stuff that people had brought on hard drives or had like sent to them. And <laughs> like, it's like, so somebody was wise enough to like warn us ahead of time, like whatever you want to have with you, like go ahead and download it and just keep it on your hard drive. And I think I'd like, I'd, I'd watch some like uh, 
yeah, like I said, bootleg recording. And I put it on my laptop and I was like spreading it around <laughs> the other volunteers in the country. And so like our only exposure to this musical was like some guy with like a shaky camera, <laughs> like hiding from the ushers. I thought um, you were going to say you had like spread it around to all the kids in the village there and they were all singing like w- waving through a window. Oh my God. We were like, in today's English class, we're going to be learning uh, Broadway songs. We're going to be learning show tunes, kids. Yeah. The, the other teacher's like, You're, you were supposed to teach in the past tense. And I'm like, well... <laughs> Have you heard them sing this uh, <laughs> Broadway medley? Um, Are you familiar with Dear Evan Hansen? <laughs> okay, so lastly, I, I have a, a sort of, well, I don't know what to call it. Sort of my, uh, a question I've been asking all my guests when they come. Do you have a favorite snack food or junk food item or however you want to take that? Something you can eat mindlessly? Uh, yeah, sea salt and vinegar potato chips, for sure which is like really bad because they're like absolutely terrible for you. And like consuming that much salt and vinegar is, it, it makes you feel absolutely terrible, but that's fine. I think sea salt and vinegar chips, Diane's is flaming hot Cheetos. Um, you've seen Diane. She's a very small person, but she could like smash an entire bag of, of flaming hot Cheetos. I think. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah. Neither super healthy, but of course that's not the question. No. Uh, <laughs> cool. Well, um, that sort of wraps things up on my end. Do you have any last minute uh, words of wisdom or questions for me? I think I'm good. Other than move back to Plano. <laughs> yes. Uh, Look, like two, two of the, two of the five of the, the bro squad from Austin are going to be married soon. So if you want to impart any drew on people, you need to move back before we have kids. And then we can just pawn them off on you for babysitting. That's true. Um, be like, all right, all right, little Blake and Vignesh Jr. Time to go over to uncle Drew's place. <laughs> that is tempting cool well um in that case uh i think we can go ahead and wrap it up i want to say thank you so much for joining me that honestly was really interesting uh getting to catch up with you and also just hearing about um some of your job and uh <laughs> some of the takeaways as well um, yeah thanks for having me let us know let me know who our guest is next week when i co-host again <laughs> okay yeah sounds good or maybe you should just start a competing uh, podcast and you can yeah I have to come up with a witty, witty, witty title for my name, though. <laughs> yeah. What rhymes with Blake? Um, well, uh, thank you, Blake, and thanks, everyone else, for listening, and have a great week. Bye.